Okay, good evening, everyone. Recording in progress. Let me mute everyone. Participants. Okay, so our topic for tonight is a continuation of last week's uh, topic, which was Israel's path to nuclear capability. And tonight, you might say it's the impact of the nuclear option on Israel's conventional wards, because no weapon has ever been used. And yet the existence or supposed existence of such a weapon does have real world impact when there is fighting. So we left off in about 1960. And tonight we'll get to roughly the Yom Kippur War. Uh, But we'll have to race through it because there's a lot to cover in that decade of the 60s. So if you remember, France was the major supplier of Israel's nuclear capability in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, a deal was signed shortly before de Gaulle came into power. And then when de Gaulle became the president of the Fifth French Republic in 1958, he tried to throw a, a monkey wrench into the whole thing. Once he decided that France was going to abandon Algeria and get out of North Africa, he didn't need Israel's intelligence help. And that had been the basis for the cooperation ever since 1956. So. De Gaulle distanced France from the great powers and tried to pursue an independent path. And he sped up France's efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. He ordered his subordinates to sever ties, military ties with Israel on the nuclear issue. And yet his subordinates did not obey him. They just ignored his instructions. He was never told the full extent of the cooperation between the two countries. And you could ask, how could it be that the instructions of a French president were ignored by his subordinates? How could how could such subordination occur? And the answer is because he was preoccupied with other things, with an economic crisis and a host of other uh, sensitive political issues that he couldn't just he couldn't keep track of everything all at once. Moreover, his scientists wanted to maintain the cooperation because France needed Israel's help on the nuclear issue. They themselves only were able to test a weapon uh, in the spring of 1960, and until that happened, they needed the help of Israeli scientists. So there was a brief hiccup in the cooperation, um, but it only lasted for a few months, and the embargo never really went beyond diplomatic channels. At the level of military-to-military cooperation, all was good. Now, de Gaulle's staff suspected that the Mossad was activating Algerian Jews against the disengagement from Algeria. That uh, the thinking was Algerian Jews don't want to see the departure of the French, just like the the right-wing French nationalists didn't want to see the French capitulate, and that the Mossad was, you know, getting themselves mixed up into all this. Um, Whether it's true or not, we don't really know. But Cutting off the special military relationship with Israel was, in de Gaulle's eyes, France's way of atoning for the 1956 collusion with Israel, at least in the eyes of the Arab world. In other words, France wants to be seen favorably in Arab eyes, and they can't be seen favorably if they're helping Israel, so cut off the relationship with Israel. Ben-Gurion went to, to France, to Paris, in the summer of 1960 to meet with de Gaulle and try to salvage this thing. And Ben-Gurion promised not to build a bomb. He lied. But then again, Ben-Gurion often lied about these things. And Perez came up with a compromise. Perez's compromise was 
the French government would cease its direct involvement, but French companies would continue to fulfill their contracts with the Israeli state. And so that's how, despite you know, pressure from the top in France to, to cut this out, it was able to continue and seem to fruition. Okay, but now let's put, put France in the rearview mirror because America is going to be the focus of our attention tonight and what the American government in the, the Kennedy, administ- uh, Kennedy administration, uh, Johnson administration, Nixon administration will have to say about these sorts of things. So on December 31st, 1960, 1960. So Eisenhower is still in office, but he's on his way out. Ambassador Ogden Reed of the United States to Israel gave uh, Foreign Minister Golda Meir a letter from the State Department demanding answers on that self-same day. That's a chutzpah to insist upon a diplomatic response within 12 hours. So what were some of these questions that were being asked? Let me read to you. I don't want to misquote it, so I will go to the source itself. Um, the uh, the questions were this. Number one, what did Israel intend to do with the plutonium produced at the Demona reactor? Number two, would Israel agree to supervision over the plutonium? Number three, would Israel permit officials of the International Atomic Energy Agency to visit the reactor and when? Number four, did Israel intend to build an additional reactor? And number five, was Israel prepared to declare that it had no plans to pursue atomic weapons? So these were questions that late in the Eisenhower term, the State Department wanted to get an immediate answer uh, from the Israeli government. Ben-Gurion thought this was very undignified and rebuked the ambassador for having the chutzpah to, to deliver this message. But Ben-Gurion said, I'll answer you anyway. And he came up with a lot of phony baloney answers. What were these answers? The plutonium would be returned to the supplier of the uranium without identifying who was the supplier of the uranium. Uh, Then representatives of friendly states, friendly states, would be allowed to visit the reactor sometime in 1961. No Russian inspectors would be allowed. There were no plans to build another reactor. And Israel had no plans to make atomic weapons. So this was the response in late 1960 by Ben-Gurion to the American State Department. Things would change over the years ahead, uh, but this was a a tense moment. When Kennedy took over, uh, Dean Rusk said that the assurances appeared to be satisfactory, but still required some clarification. JFK's posture was at first more positive than positive than Eisenhower's had been. Eisenhower had had not really been a great friend of Israel throughout his eight years in, in office. There were some bad moments, but he ended on a soft note. Kennedy uh, began, at least in theory, with a, a a favorable eye to the Jewish community that had elected him, and and, a, and an awareness that he had to be uh, good on Israel if he wanted to res- to sustain the Jewish vote. Um, well, whereas Eisenhower didn't pay much attention to Demona, the nuclear issue would dominate the discourse between the Kennedy administration and Israel. Limiting the nuclear arms race was a central feature of Kennedy's policy. Demona directly contradicted that. So Kennedy, the, on the world stage, wanted to reduce the number of, of weapons and limit the number of countries that could produce them. And here, the Israelis, an uh, upstart country, are you know bursting on the scene 
potentially with weapons. Well, while JFK wanted to avoid proliferation, Israel's case nonetheless was special, and Kennedy realized that it was special. Number one, there's the Jewish vote that he's beholden to. Number two, Israel was emerging as an ally of the West in the Cold War, and that cannot be discounted. And number three, the memory of the Holocaust was becoming more important, not less important. The memory of the Holocaust was almost a non-factor in the 1950s, but in the 1960s, things changed. After the Eichmann trial, it became something that mattered uh, in, in international relations. So, um, you know, on the one hand, this, and on the one hand, that. Kennedy wants to prevent proliferation, but on the other hand, Israel's a special case. Moreover, if Israel were to possess the bomb, it would do so for defensive purposes as a deterrent only, rather than as an offensive weapon, and that weighed in favor of America not intervening too heavily, because there was no real risk to the to the world. Okay. Now the, the United States began to regard Israel as something of a strategic ally starting in nineteen fifty eight. Because in nineteen fifty eight it was a tumultuous tumultuous year in the Middle East. And you saw the regime be overthrown in Iraq. There were problems in Lebanon, which required American intervention. The Jordanian regime was a little shaky. And the, the, the Egyptians were posing up with the Soviets. So Western-influenced Arab regimes were not doing so well. Israel was... Uh, um, a beacon of, of 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 stability. It was it was a it was a rare example of you know, a government that was stable that was not going to teeter on the edge of existence. Things were okay. You could count on Israel. Moreover, the pan Arabism of Nasser was beginning to be seen in the Western world as equal to pan Germanism. That Nasser is the new Hitler. So, for all these reasons, late in the Eisenhower term. Uh, Israel was seen, okay, as a, a possible real ally. Then, uh, JFK had certain Jews who were close to him. Abe Feinberg and Mike Feldman are the two who stand out. And they persuaded Ben-Gurion to cooperate with Kennedy in return for an appropriate reward. In other words, do the right thing by the Americans on the nuclear issue, and they'll do right by you in return. So in May 1961, Ben-Gurion flew to New York to meet Kennedy. Before that meeting, there was a discussion in the Israeli cabinet how honest, how truthful ought Ben-Gurion be in his meeting with Kennedy. Should he try to bluff his way through the whole thing? Should he tell the Emmis the, the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? It's a, it's a serious question. Golda wanted Ben-Gurion to be truthful. But Ben-Gurion preferred the deception because if Kennedy knew the truth, Kennedy would be forced to act. And if he was forced to act, it might cause the end of the, of the project. So Ben-Gurion's attitude was, what they don't know about doesn't exist. And you don't need to talk about that which doesn't exist. So that was his attitude. Um, ten years later, as it would turn out, when Golda would be prime minister herself and Nixon would be president, she would tell the truth. The, the, the whole secret was revealed in 1969-1970 with different primary parties involved. Uh, but it was a different time, and Ben-Gurion wasn't ready for that at this point. So what ended up happening was there would be an inspection. The inspection happened right before the the uh, Ben-Gurion-Kennedy visit. 
the visitors came to Dimona on May 20th, 1961. They were Ulysses Stabler and Jesse Croach of the Atomic Energy Commission of the United States. They visited Nachal Sorek, which was the American paid-for reactor on the Mediterranean. They visited the Weizmann Institute, and then they visited Dimona. Uh, there was no photography allowed. They were not told that ahead of time. When they got there, no photography allowed. Okay, fine. Uh, they expressed their satisfaction that nothing was concealed from them. But then again, what did they actually see? They saw dummy control rooms and they were not allowed in the subterranean levels. So, uh, you know, they they didn't see everything and they were they were they were bamboozled. Simply, simply put, um, the deception worked and Israel got away with it. There would be further inspections in September of 1962 and then again in January of 1964. Every time the deception working. So the meeting with Kennedy happened at the Waldorf Hotel uh, on May 30th of 61. Ben-Gurion's impressions of Kennedy were, I'm unimpressed by this guy. A younger man, a young man, a politician, not a statesman. That's what Ben-Gurion felt about Kennedy. So we in America, you know, re remember Kennedy as this revered martyr for the cause of America, you know, our assassinated president, the young man, a great man. Ben-Gurion ben thought he was a, was a, a young Shlemiel. Um, Ben-Gurion claimed that Israel needed cheap electricity provided for by the nuclear plant in order to desalinate water. That was the cover story, which, by the way, is partly true, all right? Uh, Ben-Gurion and Kennedy had little in common. Remember, they're a generation in part in age and had different backgrounds. One was uh, an aristocratic uh, type figure and one was a proletarian you know, from Plansk, from, from the old world. Um, Ben-Gurion did not tell a blatant lie insofar as he hinted at the possibility of eventual weapons production if the situation in the Middle East required it, if an arms race would call for it. So he never lied directly and said, we won't build nukes. He just said, said we, we don't have them now. We're not, we're not building them right now, which was true because that, they were not up to that phase yet. Um, now, Kennedy just wanted to make sure that other countries, notably the Soviet Union and the Arabs, did not think Israel was building nuclear weapons. As for the fact itself, that's almost immaterial. Ben-Gurion was satisfied with the meeting and JFK accepted the bluff. Although there was um, an aspect of the meeting at the end that really um, gave Ben-Gurion a negative uh, feeling towards, uh, towards Kennedy. Kennedy said to him, I, I was elected by the votes of American Jews. What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? And Ben-Gurion, thinking on his feet, said, do what's good for the United States. Now, that's the answer. That's the right answer. Not, you know, let me get my my goodies now because you're offering me something. So Ben-Gurion was savvy enough to say, do what's good for the United States. But there was no real warmth in this relationship. The warm relationship between an Israeli president and an, uh, an Israeli prime minister and an American president would have to wait till the next time around when Eshkol and Johnson would be buddies Nixon and Golda Meir, and eventually Yitzhak Rabin and Bill Clinton. Those relationships were good, strong relationships. Kennedy Ben-Gurion was just 
uh, you know, they met in the, in the hotel for 20 minutes and called it a day. So on July 5th, 1961, Israel um, fired the Shavit 2 rocket. It went 47 miles into space. And this preempted the Egyptian uh, entry into the space race by a few weeks. There was euphoria in Israel. Oh, wonderful thing. Israel is ahead of the Arab, the, their Arab neighbors in the space race. The opposition parties were not so happy about it. Why? Because it occurred about three weeks before a general election. And it was seen as like cheating. That the Mapai party, the government, was deliberately scheduling a, a major national success right before an election to win more votes. As it turned out, it didn't work in the Mapai's favor. They lost five seats in the Knesset that time around. Instead of 46, they had 41. Um, but a similar thing would be, would be, uh, accusation would be leveled against Menachem Begin in 1981 when the OC Iraq strike against Iraq occurred just before general election. And that did help Begin win, uh, fending off Shimon Peres and Labor Party. Um, all right. So, but, you know, politicians do these sorts of things. They try to, to, you know, work in their own favor. The military complained that money was being spent on civilian rockets when at the time missile technology was being scaled back and the money was not being allocated to that purpose. But we shall see, nonetheless, the rocket launch worked in Israel's favor. Nasser had said around that time that if Israel were to build a bomb, Egypt would have to do the same. But Nasser didn't actually believe that Israel was building a bomb. He figured the news stories that were being spread around that time were done on purpose just to alarm the Arabs, but did not reflect the truth. It turned out he was wrong, okay? But what what he thought matters. So Israel successfully calmed the Egyptians. It was actually the Americans who were more worried about what the Egyptians would think than the Egyptians themselves. Uh, Egypt had a small reactor that the, the Russians had given them in 1955. It was activated in 1960, but it was used for industry and, and medicine. It wasn't used for uh, uh, military purposes. It was too small for that. Instead, Egypt went on a, a, a mission to develop missile technology, possibly for conventional warheads, possibly for something a little bit not so conventional, even if not atomic. And uh, in a few weeks from now, when we get together, not actually, not, not our next session, but two sessions from now, we're going to spend a whole lecture on the Mossad's reaction to the Egyptian, to the, the German scientists working in Egypt to build uh, missiles, the, the, the Egyptian scientist episode, the, the German scientist episode. So that's an important uh, component in, in the Mossad's history. Uh, but for our purposes now, it was that rather than, than atomic technology that Egypt, that Egypt was pursuing. Okay, now in mid-1962, the Kennedy administration decided that it wanted to get involved in the, the, the Palestinian peace process issues. So they came up with an idea that Israel could admit 10 to 20 percent of uh, the Palestinian refugees in exchange for Hawk anti-aircraft missiles. It was a carrot and stick approach. We'll give you the anti-aircraft missiles. You'll help resolve you know, the, the wider problem uh, by admitting Palestinian refugees. Ben-Gurion refused. And he said this was a non-negotiable matter, the entry of Palestinian refugees. Okay, forget about it, like it didn't happen. Then Kennedy met Golda in December of 62 at Palm Beach, Florida. 
Golda congratulated Kennedy on his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis of a few weeks earlier, and Kennedy was was great was grateful for that congratulations. And then Kennedy said that Israel and the United States have a special relationship, comparable only to the relationship the United States has with Great Britain. Whoa! Now we're accustomed to hearing that sort of thing, special relationship, Israel-America, because it's been around a long time. But in 1962, that was a brand new thing. This was a major step forward. If Israel was seen by the Americans in 1958 as a potential ally, as a stable partner in the region, in 62, Kennedy is saying we have a special relationship. Okay, this is all moving in a, in a good direction. And you want to move in a good direction vis-a-vis the nuclear issue. So, uh, but this did not continue. Despite Kennedy offering sort of gentle words about the nuclear issue at Palm Beach, the pressure was stepped up again in 1963. And he wanted two annual visits to Demona by American inspectors. Ben-Gurion, at this point, realizes, I got to stall for time. Why stall for time? Because the reactor was completed in 62 and was set to become critical in December of 63. If you could just buy a little more time, maybe it becomes a fait accompli. Whereas if you have inspectors too soon, they could shut it down before the key moment and we'll lose everything. So U.S. ambassador to Israel was Walworth Barber, and he was a true friend of Israel's. Um, and he understood very early on what the true intentions of Demona really were. But because he was a friend of Israel's, he did not want to say anything about it. He didn't cause a ruckus in the State Department or with the White House. Um, but now he's the messenger for Kennedy's demands. And Kennedy was told by his advisors to consider offering Israel security guarantees as a replacement for the activities at Demona, meaning on the premise that the Israelis think they need a nuclear bomb to defend themselves, and we don't want them to have a nuclear bomb, they'll only get rid of it if we give them something which is just as rock solid. And what is that? A security guarantee from the United States government. Okay, well, the question is, even if it were to be offered, would Israel accept such a thing? Uh, And the answer is probably not. We'll see. Eventually, the answer was no. But Ben-Gurion is is happy that the Americans are sort of waffling on this issue and and not yet pressing him for a a final answer about inspections. But as soon as the letter is going to hit his desk about, you know, we want, we demand inspections, he's going to be between a rock and a hard place. He's not going to know what to do. So as it turned out, he never had to deal with it. Why? Because he resigned. David Ben-Gurion ended his prime ministerial career on June 16, 1963. He resigned as prime minister and he resigned as defense minister. He did not resign as a member of the Knesset. He actually continued to be a Knesset member until 1970. Little known facts of Israeli history, which we discussed a few years ago uh, when we did the the politics. But uh, he resigned. The proximate cause, the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was a fight that he had with Golda Meir. Uh, over the issue of IDF soldiers training in Germany, that Germany was supplying Israel with some some weaponry, and some uh, Israeli soldiers were were learning how to use that weaponry on German soil. And if you if you know your history, and we'll discuss it uh, in, in subsequent sessions, Golda was very anti-German, as was Isser Harel, the head of the Mossad. Um, 
whereas Ben-Gurion wanted to develop the relationship with the new Germany, the other Germany, the post-Nazi Germany. And he was okay with all this. Anything for Israel's security. The bottom line is Israel's security. The bygones be bygones. Um, and so Golda ripped into him over this the German issue, and he resigned. Now, the bigger reason for his resignation was also because the party was um, uh, abandoning him over the Lavon affair. They did not back his, uh, his positions uh, on the Lavon affair. Uh, so in any event, there are those who claim, Yeshomrim, that Ben-Gurion resigned when he did because he didn't want to respond to the American pressure on inspections. And he figured that if he resigned and a new person took his place, a successor took his place, whoever that might be, the Americans would have to give some time for the new prime minister to get his, you know, get, get, get his, uh, his, uh, his operations in order before he could reasonably respond to American demands for inspections. So that's something that some of the historians have claimed. Yuval Naaman, who was involved in all this, claimed that. So did Pinchas Sapir, the, the, the treasury minister. However, there's no real uh, historical evidence to back it up. Okay. Now, by the end of June of 1963, Dimona was no longer a source of internal dissension in Israel. Even Golda supported it. And the broad opposition that had existed in the 1950s, which we spoke about last time, was gone. Now there was a favorable consensus that Israel should pursue and keep nuclear weapons. How did this change? Why in just a half a decade was this uh, turnaround? The the naysayers became uh, participants in this process and going along for the ride. So a few factors. One... There, was, there had been a suspicion that France would renege on the deal, but it turned out France didn't renege on the deal. There was a concern that uh, the reactor would not work, and it turned out the reactor did work. And there was a concern that Israel's missile uh, and rocket technology would fail, and the Shavit 2 launch was successful. So a combination of, of factors that people worried about in the 1957-58 now were no longer in play, Everybody was on board. Now, there was some Israeli opposition. We shouldn't dismiss it entirely. There was a committee for the nuclear demilitarization of the Middle East, which really just meant the nuclear demilitarization of Israel. And you could you could guess, if you know anything about Zionist and Israeli history, you could guess who the, the key players were uh, in the, on this committee uh, in 1962-63. Uh, one of them being Martin Buber, okay, the old Brit Shalom crowd, the binational state crowd from 20 years earlier, Martin Buber, and, of course, the ultimate naysayer in Zionism, Yeshayahu Leibowitz, uh, the professor and the, the brother of Nechama Leibowitz. Yeah, so they were the ones who said, no nuclear weapons uh, no, for Israel, no way. But the media didn't cover them. Why didn't the media cover them? So, first of all, there was no television yet. There's no television in Israel to 1968. And the, the radio was basically state-owned radio, and they were going to do what they were told. And even the privately owned newspapers were self-censoring in the name of national security. So while there were some public intellectuals who didn't like this idea of a nuclear project, those voices never got the kind of um, uh, airtime that they might have otherwise got. Okay, so Eshkol ultimately receives 
Levi Yeshkel, who, who takes over for Ben Gurion, um, receives the American letter on July fifth, nineteen sixty three, and although he was warned by his advisors that it was going to be pretty harsh, even he was surprised by the tone that the Kennedy administration was taking and its demand the demands that it was making. No American president had ever threatened an Israeli prime minister so bluntly during peacetime. JFK demanded reliable information about Israel's nuclear program, lest American support for Israel be jeopardized. Those are the exact words, jeopardized. So this is tough talk. Uh, how does Eshkol respond? He spent the next month and a half agonizing over how to respond to this. Uh, now, if you wonder why the sharp change in tone by Kennedy, in part it's because the Cuban Missile Crisis changed his, his psychology on things, his thinking on things, and also because inspections at Demona were connected or were linked to American-Russian negotiations over the nuclear test ban treaty, that the Russians wanted to extract a concession from the Americans about inspections at, at, at Israel's facilities. So that's why Kennedy was, was getting real tough on this. Now, Eshkol doesn't know what to do, uh, whereas Ben-Gurion had no moral scruples on these things and was willing to lie no matter, you know, even if he might get caught. Eshkol didn't like lying and certainly didn't want to get caught and exposed as a liar. So he began to seriously consider the prospect of an American security guarantee as an alternative to the bomb. However, Moshe Dayan, who at that time was not a high-ranking minister, uh, in fact, he was really on the outs because this was he was Ben Gurion's protege, uh, and Ben Gurion was was out of the picture. But Dayan still was respected, so he and IDF chief of staff Svi Sewer advised Eshkol to stick with the bomb, forget about American guarantees, and this would mean Israel could fight its wars the way it wants to fight its wars. And there was real doubt as to whether America would come to Israel's aid in the event Israel was really attacked. So okay, fine, but. Eshkol was concerned, the whole world aren't idiots. We can't fool everyone all the time. And our bluffing our way through these inspections might eventually fail. So whereas 1950s Israel would have taken American security guarantees, 1960s Israel wanted the the work product of Demona and wanted offensive weaponry from the United States. And Israel would eventually get both. So for all of Eshkol's qualms about how to handle this, in the end, it would work out fine. Eshkol finally responded on August 19th and agreed to allow American visitors in deference to the so-called special intimacy of the relations between our two countries. So if Kennedy mentioned special relationship, so Eshkol is now saying special intimacy of relations between our two countries. The visitors did show up. They came on January 18th, 1964, and they reported that there was no weapons capacity. Again, they were bamboozled. Although by the time they, they arrived, Kennedy was no longer president. Kennedy was in a grave in Arlington Cemetery. He was dead. And Johnson was president. Okay, well, after Kennedy uh, died on the day of my mother's bat mitzvah, November 22nd, 1963, so it was an important day in, in, in Jewish history too, um, Johnson became president and... Johnson invited some Jews to the White House. And he said, you have lost a good friend, but you have gained a better friend than me. And he was telling the truth, because Johnson was much better for the Jews than Kennedy was. Much better. Okay. 
So during his tenure, the U.S. sold Israel offensive weaponry for the first time. Johnson grew up uh, as a Bible-believing Christadelphian in Texas. His ancestors taught him to be good to the Jews. They're God's chosen people. He got along very well with Eshkol. He invited Eshkol to the ranch in Texas, and they got along swimmingly. Uh, there's a famous story in Yehuda Avner's book, The Prime Ministers, that J- uh, Johnson was driving erratically, wild, you know, too fast and too wildly on the ranch with Eshkol in the front seat with him and Avner in the back seat. And Johnson was was talking with his Texas drawl over the, 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 the buzz of the engine. And Eshkol didn't understand in his limited English what Johnson was saying. And he turned to, to Yehuda Avner and said to him in Yiddish, Vosret der Goy. What is the Goy saying? Because uh, <laughs> he, he couldn't understand them. All right, but they got they got along really well. Now, now Av, uh, uh, Johnson had saved Jewish refugees from the Nazis in 1938. Had raised money for the Haganah in 1942. Had visited Dachau in 1945. Johnson was a legit friend of the Jews, and he wanted to sell Israel modern attack planes and tanks. But the State Department and the Defense Department kept trying to make those sales conditioned on Israel divulging its nuclear secrets. In the end, Johnson would have the deals go through unconditionally uh, because that's really what he wanted. And despite whatever you know, Arabist sentiment in other branches of the executive, uh, parts of the executive branch, he would overrule them as the president. Eshkol made popular the following line. Israel will not be the first to introduce nuclear weapons to the Middle East. It's a line you'll still hear today. It was a gene. It was genius in its ambiguity, nuclear ambiguity. It was not an outright lie, but it was not the whole truth. Who invented this line about ambiguity of, uh, well, we won't be the first to introduce weapons. Some say it was Yaakov Herzog. Yaakov Herzog, the, uh, the brother of Chaim Herzog, the, uh, the uncle of the president, the current president, Yitzhak Herzog, the son of the former chief rabbi. Yaakov Herzog was a great Zionist and great Jew. Sadly, died a little too young. Um, but he was the director general, uh, general of the prime minister's office. So some say it was Herzog, uh, but it was probably Shimon Peres, actually. Peres most likely was the one who came up with the ambiguity of, we won't be the first to introduce something. Um, now, Eshkol told Johnson that he could not permit the Americans to pass along information about Demona to the Egyptians because Nasser is the enemy. The Americans wanted to pass along whatever information the Israelis had told them to the Egyptians to assuage the Egyptians, to prevent the nuclear arms race. However, despite not wanting the Americans to do that at first, Eshkol then capitulated and said, fine, you want to tell the Egyptians, go right ahead. Well, in 1965... The U.S. sold Israel 48 Skyhawk planes and 200 Patton tanks. And the U.S. committed to balancing the forces of Israel with those of the neighboring states, that there should be, Israel should not be behind in conventional weapons. Uh, also in 1965, Ben-Gurion was expelled from the Mapai party, and he ends up starting a new party, Rafi, with Diane and Paris. But it, because Ben-Gurion was gone, it was time to clean the stables. It was time for Eshkol to clean house in the nuclear uh, world and fire all the people who had been Ben-Gurion loyalists and who were getting in the way and who were spending money that the state didn't have because Eshkol was a treasury guy at heart and he didn't want to see this 
pro- this project balloon Israel's budget and bankrupt the state. So a lot was cut. People were fired. Feelings were hurt. But it had to be done. Ben-Gurion responded by savagely attacking Eshkol and accusing him of destroying the nuclear project. And these attacks by Ben-Gurion on Eshkol's character may have contributed to Eshkol's failing health uh, and his death in 1969. I mean, he really he took, he, he took it personally that, that his mentor and colleague Ben-Gurion would think so lowly of him and attack him verbally as the way he did. It was kind of ugly. Okay, but when did Israel actually get nuclear capacity, to, a weapon? So, though there are those who say that it happened in November of 1966. But Israel never tested a weapon. So how did, how did they know that they had capacity to strike if there was no test? And the answer is by cold testing, by simulation. And the most important one happened on November 2, 1966, uh, Perez and Munyam uh, Mardor, the head of Rafael, went home happy, and their children noticed how they had big smiles on their faces that night. Um, by by that time, Israel had enough weapons-grade uh, plutonium to build a bomb, and the CIA concluded around the same time that even if Israel did not have an active device, they could assemble one within a few weeks. the The existential angst that Israel suffered from. Uh, did not recede in the second decade of Israel's existence. You know, the first decade was tough. There was a war of independence. There was a period of austerity, of uh, influx of a lot of immigrants that uh, caused an economic crisis. There was the Suez War. It was a tough first 10 years. But the second 10 years was a time of basically of peace and of, of relative prosperity and advancement of the, of, of the standard of living. Things were good. But despite that fact, the angst was still there, that at any moment we could all die and all be destroyed. Why was this the case? Well, the Holocaust was becoming more important, not less important. It was on the minds of people much more so in the mid to late 60s than it was in the early 50s. Um, and this fear of another Holocaust explains why there was panic and confusion during the Hamtana, the waiting period of the three weeks before the Six-Day War, between May 15, 1967, and uh, June 5th. So we now have to ask the question, why did the Six-Day War happen? Why did it happen? So we've had, I've spoken many times about the Six-Day War in these classes, but the, the, the question is relevant t- tonight for our purposes because we need to know, was Israel's nuclear program a factor in precipitating war? Some say yes. That the why did the Russians tell the Egyptians that Israel was about to invade Syria? Because that's I mean, for those who know their history, the, the Six Day War began because Nasser got all all excited following Soviet reports that Israel was going to invade Syria. Those reports were wrong; they were simply not true. So why did the Russians say it if it wasn't true? Did they honestly believe it? Maybe, or were they trying to rile up the Egyptians over a a, a, a falsehood? for the sake of a conventional war that would attack Israel and destroy Israel's budding nuclear capacity before it, it's too late. So, Yeshomrim, there are those who say that that was exactly the Russian intention, or maybe the, the Egyptian intention, was to go after Dimona in a conventional war before Israel had a bomb. So, Michael Oren, who wrote the authoritative book on the Six-Day War, doesn't think so. He feels that was not the case. 
And the evidence suggests, you know, that he's right, that this, this was not the main uh, concern of the Egyptians. But that doesn't mean Israel wasn't afraid of it. So on May 17th, Egyptian MiGs overflew Demona at 55,000 feet. No Israeli planes could get that high. The Mirage couldn't get to 55,000 feet. And only over that overflight over Demona did Yitzchak Rabin, the chief of staff of the IDF, uh, put the army on a high alert. It was not the closing of the Straits of Tehran. It was not the removal of UN peacekeepers uh, in the Sinai that caused the high alert. It was the overflight over Demona because the army was concerned that war could break out and the Egyptians could try to grab a slice of the Negev and cut off Israel's nuclear reactor from the rest of the state. This was not such an unreasonable thought, because after all, in the 1948 war, that's exactly what happened, that the Egyptians invaded, took a slice of the Negev, and cut off part of the country of Israel from the main body of Israel. And it took a lot of effort and a lot of fighting to oust the Egyptians and to reconnect the two parts, the broken parts of Israel. So there was real concern that if this were to occur, there'd be radioactive fallout, Israel would become uninhabitable. Never before in history, and nuclear history had only been 20 years old at that point, or 23 years old at that point, had, had a reactor been potentially in the battlefield uh, and facing destruction. Uh, in fact, it has never happened until... Russia's war against Ukraine last year, if you remember, you know, when the when they were there was fighting at the nuclear plant um, and the concerns that it would blow up. So that was the, a real concern that the Israelis had in late May, early June of 67. Because of all these fears and concerns, the government was unstable. Chaim Moshe Shapiro from the Maftal suggested that Eshkol be replaced as defense minister uh, with Ben-Gurion himself. Now, Eshkel was always in Ben-Gurion's sh- shadow, but this was a terrible idea, because as it turned out, Ben-Gurion was a dove who uh, was wrong. Ben-Gurion got the Six-Day War all wrong. He was preaching moderation and restraint and uh, 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 against any military action. So the Americans assumed Israel would win easily, and Israel likely had two serviceable bombs before the war started. There's an assumption that Israel had two serviceable bombs. Now, Perez suggested just before the war broke out that Israel publicly announced that it has a nuclear bomb as a means of averting war. Uh, ironically, it was you know Perez himself who invented the nuclear ambiguity. And now he's the one saying just a few years later, no, no, say it wide open to avoid a war. Eshkol and Dayan rejected this proposal. Now, by that point, Dayan was the defense minister. All this uh, this talk of Eshkol is weak, Eshkol is weak, led not to Ben-Gurion becoming defense minister, but to Dayan becoming defense minister. But both he and Eshkol said, no, we're not going to make any announcements. Moreover, it's unlikely that even if they had made an announcement that it would have averted the war, the war was going to happen anyway. In fact, Egypt had no major plan to attack Demona. Why? Because Nasser didn't take Demona as seriously as the Israelis thought he did. Some historians argue that Nasser wanted to precipitate a conventional war before Israel had a chance to develop non-conventional weapons. But again, there's really no evidence for this theory. Okay, So now we go to after the Six-Day War. And we get to Edward Teller. Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, 
was the source for the CIA's 1968 assessment that Israel already had nuclear weapons. Between 1964 and 1967, Teller visited Israel six times. He was a Jew, he was a Zionist, he was a political conservative, and he was on the outs with most of the scientific community, which were political liberals. And much of the scientific community after the Manhattan Project had sort of regrets and qualms about, about having done it in the first place, and Teller said, no, 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 bombs away. He he believed in in, in strong Western deterrence against the, the threats of the Arabs and of, of, of the, the Russians. He was gung-ho about all this stuff. So right after the Six-Day War, Teller met Yuval Naaman at a conference in Rochester, New York. And he sat Naaman down at, by a tree, by a tree trunk, Teller on one side, Naaman on the other. And they weren't facing each other, but they were talking to each other. And Teller said to Naaman, I know you guys have nukes. I'm going to go tell the, the American government. I'm going to tell the CIA. And it'll be better for you. Because it's better than having to say half-truths. So Teller did exactly that. And he convinced the Americans to stop the inspections. Because there was no point to the inspections anymore. But now the question is, will Israel come clean? In other words, it's one thing for the Americans to assume they have weapons. It's another thing for Israel to say it. And Israel wants phantom aircraft during the War of Attrition. The War of Attrition, which lasts for three years between 68 and 70, was a very tough war. Uh, Israel lost a lot of aircraft. Uh, a lot of men, men died uh, on the Barlev line. So the War of Attrition is going on. Israel needs phantom aircraft. Rabin was sent, after he was done being the, the head of the army, he was sent to be ambassador to the United States. And his job was to seal the deal on arms purchases. But the U.S. government was giving them a hard time. How do we know you won't use those phantoms to drop a nuclear bomb on one of your Arab neighbors? He would be asked. Will you bear the truth about Demona for the sale of the phantoms? Big question. Will Israel or will it or will they not? And uh, one of the, the key players opposing the sale of, of phantoms to Israel without Israel coming clean about the nukes was none other than Clark Clifford. If you know your history... The name Clark Clifford will ring a bell. Clark Clifford, in 1948, in the Truman administration, when he was a younger man, uh, had been instrumental in getting Truman to um, um, voice his support for the creation of the, the Jewish state and have American recognition of the state of Israel as soon as it was born. So Clifford, in the, the bigger picture, is known as a friend of Israel. But that was actually very temporary. 20 years later, in 1968, he was opposed to the sale of the phantoms. He wanted to bust Israel's chops over the nukes. He had turned very pretty anti-Israel. Clifford would go on to live to like, be like 100. I think he died a couple of years back. He was a very old man when he died. Um, and he was a bit of an enigma. He never fully explained why he was pro-Israel in one moment and anti in the other, and what, what, what guided his opinions. But in any event, Israel didn't want to come clean so soon. They were not yet ready under Eshkol, uh, and during the Johnson administration, to admit the truth. They weren't really hiding much anymore, but they didn't want to admit the truth. So Robin also had a problem that he was hated by some in the Defense Department because of the USS Liberty episode. Now, the Liberty episode was a very tragic episode. 34 American sailors died during the Six-Day War when Israel bombed an American vessel. And we don't really like to talk about it because who, who talks about the Liberty? Neo-Nazis. Uh, uh, American right-wing anti-Semites like to talk about the liberty. 
and say, oh, they're evil Zionists, uh, they're enemies of America. So those people exist now, but they all the more so existed in 68, a year after it happened. So but Robin had, had, his, had his troubles, but um, he was negotiating in November of 68, right around the time of the election. Remember, Johnson didn't run for re-election, so he's a, a lame duck. This is discussing with the lame duck administration. So Robin is talking with Assistant Secretary of State Paul Warnicky. And Warnicky wrote a document in which the third paragraph of the document said that in exchange for Israel being allowed to buy uh, 100 Skyhawk uh, aircraft and 50 Phantoms, Israel would have to open up every single facility in its country to American inspectors. Every single one upon demand. And to sign the Non-Proliferation Treaty. So Robin was 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 furious at this. You know, he said, we came to buy planes. We didn't come to mortgage the sovereignty of the state of Israel. So chutzpah of you to ask, to say, for so 50 planes, we can, we can invade your territory and inspect every last inch of your facilities. Okay. So uh, in the end, the sale went through because Johnson wanted it to happen. No strings attached. Uh, and this this repeated itself uh, several times during his administration that he, the underlings would say you want weapons you got to come clean and Johnson would say you want weapons good they're sold no, no strings attached. Um, Robin and the, the the U.S. State Department fought over the meaning of the term introduction. Remember, Israel had promised not to be the first ones to introduce nuclear weapons in the Middle East. What does it mean to introduce something? Does it mean test it? Does it mean announce it? Publicize it? What if you have a, a weapon, but you never tested it and you never announced that you have it? Does it exist? If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, does it make a sound? That sort of question. And you know, back and forth, Robin with the State Department. They caught Robin in a double standard because Robin basically said that if the Egyptians had something that was untested and not declared, it would still be a problem. But if Israel does that, it's not a problem. So they said, uh, you know, that's hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And Robin's response was that um, you can't separate weapons from policy. Weapons exist to advance policy. And Egypt has a policy of destroying Israel. Israel has no policy of destroying Egypt. Therefore, you're allowed to have this different standard because the, the playing field is not even. Okay, well, all said and done, Eshkol dies. And Johnson is out of office. Now you have Golda and Nixon. Golda went to, to Washington in 1969 to tell the truth to the Nixon administration. It was fortunate for Israel that the National Security Advisor, who would go on to become Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, whom I had the pleasure of meeting many times at Parkey Synagogue, um, uh, Kissinger was in favor of U.S. allies either getting nukes or at least not being stopped from pursuing nukes. Uh, A senior State Department official warned that all future American visits to Dimona should be called off. Why? Because considering that Israel was stage managing the whole thing and was bluffing its way through these meetings, and in fact had nukes, the fact of American visits could be seen by the Russians and by the Arabs as the United States colluding with Israel to give Israel nuclear weapons. 
So better to not have the the, the show, the, the farce at all. Just stop doing it. And don't give uh, the Russians and the Arabs any ammunition in the diplomatic war. So from the moment is, uh, Nixon recognized Israel's atomic capability, Dimona was granted retroactive legitimacy. What was the deal that Golda and Nixon agreed to? We can't know the specifics. It's still classified and probably will be forever. But the rough outline of the agreement between Nixon and Golda Meir can be known. Israel agreed to three nodes. Okay, three nodes. What are they? No publication, no testing, and no provoking the Arabs. What does the United States commit to? The United States committed to not letting Israel reach a situation of conventional military weakness. So if America holds, upholds that end of the bargain, then the Israeli nuclear weapon never needs to be deployed because Israel will not lose a conventional war. Okay, fine. Now, what happens during the Yom Kippur War? So I, I suggest you, you you watch the movie Golda with Helen Mirren. It's a pretty good movie. I mean, the the most memorable scene in the whole movie, for those of you who, who saw it already, you'll, you'll recall this, is that Golda's having a meeting during the war with the generals and, and the defense minister, and there's some food out on the table in her apartment. And when the meeting is over and nobody really touched the food and everyone's dispersing, Ariel Sharon is the last one to leave. And he sees there's like an apple pie or something there and he grabs the whole pie with his hand and shoves it in his pocket. Okay, so that was the, the, uh, a little a little stuck on, on Ariel's weight problem that he had later in life. But, um, okay, so during the war, Diane had a panic attack and thought that the third temple was going to be destroyed. The third commonwealth is falling. He was wrong. As it turned out, you know, Israel was never really in danger of annihilation, but they didn't know that at the time. So were the nuclear weapons armed and ready for firing or not? Again, a machlokis. Some say yes, and some say no. The paper evidence, the paper trail doesn't exist. But reliable sources have said both things. Some said yes, and some said no. Is it, it is assumed that Israel had approximately 12 bombs available at its, at its, uh, uh, for use at that time. But um, why was Israel never really in danger of annihilation, certainly not on the southern front? Because Sadat was not planning to press ahead. He never really wanted to get more than a few miles of territory recovered on the east side of the canal, which he got, and the war ended in a situation which was favorable for his diplomatic pursuits. So why did he not want to press any further? He could have. I mean, if the army, if the Egyptian army had wanted to cross the Sinai west to east and go the distance, it probably could have attempted it and maybe even been successful. But why did he not? The answer is the bomb in the basement theory that he understood. Whereas Nasser believed Israel didn't have nukes, Sadat was convinced Israel did have nukes. And because Israel had nukes, there were things that he, as the Egyptian leader, prosecuting a war against Israel, could not do. And the basic thing is, you can't make Israel feel as though its back is against the wall and that the state might be destroyed. Because if they feel that way, they'll bomb the hell out of Cairo with a nuclear weapon and kill millions of people. So you can't put Egypt in a situation where it's endangering Israel to the point of Israel dropping a nuke on Egypt. 
That's why don't proceed any further. Assuming that analysis of the war is correct, and I think that it is, then the Demona project did its job. Okay, in a conventional war that Israel might have lost if not for dramatic assistance from the Americans, um, the existence of a weapon not even yet deployed, but its existence was enough to steer the course of a conventional war in a manner that allowed Israel to survive and eventually reach a peace agreement with the Egyptians at Camp David. So uh, those who, who, who look back upon the, the, the Demona project and feel that it didn't really do anything because nothing was ever used are wrong. It did have an impact on conventional wars. Um, of course, that impact presupposes that only Israel has nuclear weapons and that the, the, the surrounding states don't. What happens if an enemy of Israel were, of Israel's were to acquire a weapon like the Iranians or the Iraqis back in the 80s or the Syrians in the early 2000s when they were on their way? That changes the equation. Would Israel then publicize its arsenal, do a test? Who knows? We only know what's happened until now when it's been a, Israel's had the monopoly on things. Now, did Israel ever conduct a test? So this will be the last point for tonight. There are those who claim that in 1979, the Israelis, with, with, the, with the help of the South African apartheid regime, did a test in the Indian Ocean. It's the Vela incident, the double-flashed Vela incident of 1979. The Carter administration investigated it very thoroughly and came to sort of an uncertain conclusion. There are those who claim Israel did three tests, uh, um, uh, two below ground uh, and one in the water, the Indian Ocean. Nobody's ever admitted to anything. I don't know. I don't know what to think. My guess is they probably never did a test, but I could be wrong. Anyway, now I'll take your questions. Let me see if you people. Okay, you can unmute if you want. Questions, questions. No questions? Three, two, one. And on that note, then, a happy Hanukkah to everybody. And we'll see each other again in two weeks. Okay? Have a good night. Great.